O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Let us pray. We stand in awe of who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The things that you have created, both seen and unseen, how you sustain all things, Lord, even those who shake their fist at you in anger and hate. Our Lord and Savior, we see your power and your might through providence and through creation. May we stand in awe of who you are, as we saw last night, some of us, in the thunderstorms and the like, and those are but pittance. They are little firecrackers, Lord, compared to your awesome power and might and how you control and direct all things to their final end. Help us, Lord, to stand in awe and stand in humility as well, Lord, as we struggle with our sins, as we acknowledge our sins in thought, word, and deed, in various and sundry ways, God, throughout the week. We are weak at times, Lord, in ways we do not realize at times they surprise us. So, God, we acknowledge these sins, whatever they may be, knowing that you are our Lord and Savior. You are our Father, who have covenanted with us with grace and told us that you are faithful and true to forgive us all unrighteousness if we come before you repentant and pleading the blood of Christ. Help us, God, to be encouraged thereby by the gospel of grace and promises of the word of God to bring our sins, Lord, yes, daily. And to thank you for your grace and for the means of grace that you've given us, that we may grow and become more like Christ, to be more mature, to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. We thank you, Lord, for the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper used to strengthen our feeble hands, for the preaching of the word to call us unto the light of your glory, the reading of the Bible and prayer, Lord. You've given us these things that we may grow thereby, to be more like Jesus, to be more like you, to grow closer to heaven in many ways. Help us, Lord, not to be discouraged, but ever to carry on in our callings and vocations of life, whatever they may be, and always, Lord, to go back to the means of grace and behind the means of grace, more importantly, to you, God, to pray to you, to sing to you, to hear the word of God spoken by you through the mouth of your people, through the mouth of your pastor in particular. We pray, God, for the work of our lives and our stewardship that we are called thereby. Thankful for employment. Thankful, Lord, for good pay. Praying, God, that we would have good workers and good working conditions. Asking, Lord, that you would help us therein to do what we can as workers. And, Lord, to be thankful to do what we can, Lord, to expand our work base, perhaps for a better job as we think of the future. We think especially, Lord, of our jobs and other things that we have in life as stewards. Uh, That is, those who have things that are yours, God. We're supposed to take care of the things you have given us. Not just our work, but our lives and everything included in in it, Lord. Our talents, our time, our abilities, our opportunities. Help us, Lord, therein to be good stewards. To be stewards, Lord, who live in godly fear, but also in godly hope. To know that you work through our feeble efforts to expand your kingdom and to help one another grow in grace. Help us, Lord, to understand our talents and abilities and our opportunities and use them for your kingdom's sake. Especially, Lord, for those closest to us, we think of our family. Being a steward, God, as you know, as you directed us in your word, is not something special so far as we're supposed to find special people in special times, but to use what we have for those who are here immediately with us, our responsibilities, Lord, as family and friends, as members of this church, members of our community. So help us, God, to continue to do these things, to be faithful to your word and our responsibilities and the things you've given us, God, to use them and not bury them in the ground, but rather, Lord, to multiply their usefulness for your kingdom's sake. We pray with respect to the economy of this nation. Not because we desire to be rich for riches' sake, Lord, but we know riches can be used for the good of others, for those who are poor in our midst, in the church of God, for the help of the ministry, of the preaching of the word. 
And so, Lord, although we wish for a good economy and good jobs for our fellow citizens, but we pray especially for our, our fellow Christians, Lord. We are called in Galatians 6.10 to do good to all, but especially the household of faith. And to do good includes prayer. We ought to pray especially for the household of faith, God, and pray for those Christians who have lost their job for doing the right thing, for standing up for your word and marriage. And may the churches help them and sustain them, God. May the economy be strong enough and the churches wise enough, Lord, for any investments, for the use of their money and times and talents, God, again, to help their own members first and foremost. And Lord, we pray for this society, for the lewdness and the wickedness, the covetousness and all violations of the Ten Commandments, lauded and praised through entertainment and Hollywood, through the social leaders and social light, and those that influence in our society, God, not just politicians, in many ways, especially others and business leaders and the like, God, who promote and pay for these things and they hide their promotion of such wickedness and wretchedness, God, behind lawyers and laws. But we know they're there and they've been exposed many times, God. We ask, Lord, that they would repent that they would have access to your word and understand their wickedness and repent. And saving that, God, may you and your providence, we pray, working through your people and others, Lord, in particular, to stop these evil machinations, to stop such wickedness and promotion of such wickedness, even in commercials, God, we see these things. And it vexes upon us. Help us to stand firm against such a wicked society, uh, to turn off the TV if need be, Lord, to stay away from bad influences as we are able, God and to reinforce godliness in our lives, to pray for one another, to pray for our children, Lord, for they're growing up in a a society worse than what we grew up in in many ways. The temptations are are greater in many ways as well, Lord, for our society does not wish to protect the children but make easy access for adults for all kinds of wickedness. So, Lord and Savior, help us to be wise as churches and our leaders in particular and continue to pray for our nation to repent and to follow you. Be with us this day, we pray. And guide my words in the preaching of your word, the preaching of the truth of the Bible of Jesus Christ. And draw us nigh unto you by the blood of your Savior, of our Savior. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Again, God, we are thankful for the ability as stewards in your kingdom to give these tithes and offerings for the work of the church and the ministry. Bless them, we pray, and bless the givers. Amen. Let's turn to our Bibles. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Let us listen attentively. To the Word of God, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. You, of course, will recognize this. I will go ahead and read from verse 18 for the fuller context. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let us pray. With these words of the Great Commission, of the origin of the New Testament expression of the Church of God, Lord, may we be encouraged and stand firm upon the truth of the Trinity, that there is but only one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Who is God, and what does it mean for Christians and our living, that there is a God and that he and what he is like was explained in the prior two sermons, and that this God is three persons will be explained in this sermon. And not just that there are three persons in the Godhead, but that they are equal in substance, power, and glory, that there is what we say and what we call a trinity, and that this trinity saved us 
For if any point God is not involved in our salvation, then God is not saving us, and we should not give him all the praise and all the glory. But he is involved in every point from eternity past to the cross to your salvation right now. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit saved you and is continuing to save you to the uttermost. Let us learn anew that each person in the divine, is divine and that each person has saved us. So we will have three points for each member of the Trinity. God the Father is the first point. As you know, as all of you have at least read the Bible once, I believe, and read much of the Bible after that, the Bible does not argue for the existence of God, but assumes it. There's no dissertation as such. It's partly because it's so obvious. The heavens declare the glory of our Creator. In a similar fashion, God as the Father, the first person of the Blessed Trinity, is assumed in the Old Testament. That there is a God, of course, in Genesis 1-1, and we preached through that two weeks ago, or I did. You, you, you were here, I hope. I preached through it. There are hints, even there, of the three persons of the Trinity, and you will see this in Genesis 1 and following. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God, where did that come from? Then God said, and he spoke, let there be light, and there was light. And we know from John 1, 1, that that word is Jesus Christ. He's involved in creation. That there is one God is very clear from the Bible. It's emphasized in the Old Testament for an obvious reason. If this was a Sunday school class, I would ask you, what is that obvious reason? Because of polytheism. Many gods, the belief of many gods was widespread. The existence of God the only true God, was so obvious that at the time, the only way Satan could deceive people was to make a multiplicity of gods to hide the true God. Because they couldn't deny that something made this world. It didn't come from nothing. Nothing does not produce nothing. But there had to be some supreme being. Of course, they started creating their own deities, made-up gods and like. I mean, imagine growing up thinking that there were many so-called gods, thinking that there was a Zeus, a Hermes, a Hercules, it would be a hard habit to break, wouldn't it? And especially when the Jews, the Old Testament church, was in Egypt for hundreds of years, surrounded in a pagan society, and we're finding ourselves to be surrounded in. The pressure is immense and powerful. Everywhere they looked, they had hundreds of gods, if maybe even thousands. I mean, the dung beetle was a god in Egypt. Do you know that? It's crazy. So it would make sense from the fact that God is a loving God and he wants to help people, his, his own people, learn who he is. He would highlight the unity, the singleness, that there is but one God. And so we know the famous passages of Deuteronomy 6.4. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or elsewhere, there is no one like the Lord our God. Because there are no other lords and gods but him. The claim of the Old Testament church of Israel and of the Jews was a unique claim in the ancient Near East. Everywhere you turned, everyone was a polytheist. Although they may not believe in the dung god and worship him, but they believed in some kind of god. Another god, a multiplicity of gods, in fact. But they never made the claim there was only one god. But the Jews did. So the Jews always stood out like a sore thumb. If you remember in Sunday school class, I went over the Greco-Roman Empire and the history and the religious background and how Rome didn't persecute religions per se unless they were a new, unique religion, some 
Something come out of nowhere. The old ancient polytheisms were okay, with the exception of the Jews. They were okay too, but they weren't of the old polytheistic religion. They had enough problems, I guess, with the Jews, if you know the Maccabean revolt and everything else, that they guess they figured they'd just leave them alone. They stuck out, they stuck out like a sore thumb. Now, in particular, it's not just God, and you, the language often is God or Lord or Adonai. You've heard some of the Anglicized versions of the Hebrew words. But he's also called Father in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy we read, In the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son. Jeremiah 31.9 we read, Jeremiah 31.9, They shall come with weeping, and with supplications will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way wherein they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Isaiah 64.8, But now, O Lord, thou art our father. We are the clay, thou art the potter, and we are all the works of thy hand. You know, Paul picks up that thought in Romans 9. In the New Testament, Father is especially highlighted and used uh, to express the unique person of the Father as over against the Son and the Holy Spirit. A revelation of each of them, which, as we know, were there in shadowed form in the Old Testament, and a clearer revelation in the New Testament. In John 1.14, we read, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 8.54, we read, Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. So it becomes clearer now that Jesus is the Son of God, and that the God they speak of, that is the first member of the Trinity, is the Father. A unique role and position in the Trinity, as is the Son and the Holy Spirit. He's there in the New Testament. He was always there in the Old Testament. Although, again, as we'll see, the other two members are hinted at, in some ways even strongly seen, as we saw the Spirit of God hovering across the, the earth, the waters of the earth. But I want to focus here in this first point on the Father's redemptive role. He has a creation role. He's there in the beginning. He speaks, and the Son is the Logos, that is the Word of God, and the Spirit's there hovering over the earth. You can see each of the members of the Trinity have a role in creation. They also have a role in redemption. The greater revelation in the New Testament shows three different roles of redemption for your redemption, brothers and sisters. This is one reason why we believe in the Trinity, because it is God that saves you. And if we argue that Jesus saves you, and Jesus is not God, and you can't say God saves you, you say God did a lot of saving, but he didn't do all of it, you realize... There's something else going on here. It's the doctrine of the Trinity. And that's what our forefathers, as we saw in church history, in Sunday school class, unpacked in the two and three hundreds especially. Each person of the Godhead has a role in our salvation. And we read of the fathers in particular, and we see these roles in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. So I guess you can make that the, the secondary or the sub secondary text of this sermon, Matthew 28, which clearly is Trinitarian, baptized somebody in the name of not just the Father, the name of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, three members of the one Godhead. But Ephesians gives us more detail. Ephesians 3, 1, chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, which is one long sentence, is an amazing doxology, that is a theology of praise, in which it talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. (laughs) In that order, more or less. 
We read in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There he is. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It's the Father. He's doing something unique. He's blessing us. And it's blessing through the Son. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Who's doing the choosing? Who's doing the predestination? But the Father. The Father arranged redemption for you, brothers and sisters, from eternity past, before anything was ever created. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? Talk about eternity, the best we can usually think of is forward in time. Sure, I'll live forever. I can imagine my mind still thinking these thoughts a thousand years from now, and new thoughts and having new experiences. But to think and imagine that you were never born, kind of like going backwards, it's beyond comprehension. God was never born. He was never created. And from that eternity past, without end, not here, not here, just keep, no. He arranged, he chose us, he predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. It's a different activity than the son, because he talks about blessing us through the son or in the son and being adopted as sons by Jesus Christ through the instrumentality in the work of Christ which is clearly different than the Father. Ephesians is telling us there's a Father in the Godhead, and He has a different role and activity in redemption than the Son. We praise and honor Him for that. That's the Father. That's not usually a problem in our circles. We meet the cult members. Uh, These are people who claim and pretend to be Christians and are not, Mormons, uh, Jehovah Witnesses, and the like. And often these groups and other groups play around with the deity and the Godhead. And they'll say, sure, I believe that Father is God, but I don't believe the Son is God. I don't believe the Holy Spirit is God. And so we will spend a little more time on those doctrines which are more attacked than this first one. We have in the Shorter Catechism, how does it appear that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father? That would be the larger catechism. How does it appear that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father? That's a pretty straightforward question. (laughs) How do you prove the deity of the Son and the Holy Ghost? The Scriptures manifest that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father. How? By ascribing, that is, giving and describing unto them such names, attributes, works, and worship as are proper to God only. That which is worshipped as God is God. That which is given honor as God is God. That which is omnipotent like God, has the attributes of God, is God. Simple as that. That's the reasoning. Aristotelian logic. There's no way around it. You'd have to attack the Bible. And here's the Bible passages. I'll go over the Old Testament, because it's there, like I mentioned before. Psalm chapter 2. I touched on this when I preached through Psalm 2, as I go through the Psalms uh, once a month in the evening. I will declare the decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. And who? The son. Why aren't they blessed for putting their trust in the father? They're supposed to be trusting God. What kind of a Jew is David here in Psalm 2? He's saying, trust this son, this king. Who is he? He must be God as well. That's the logic. Psalm 45, 6 through 7. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore God, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. What? He, he believes in the Shema of Israel, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6, 4. 
What's he talking about here? He is expressing in, in his Old Testament way, because it was not very clear to him, that there are two persons in the Godhead. And that this person, the son, the king, whom he ascribes to, has, a, has anointed you, right? The father, your God, has anointed you. That anointing language, again, is of the future king, the son of David, Jesus Christ. That he is God. He calls him God. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you. Well, who's anointing Jesus? The father. Isaiah 9.6, you all know this because we have songs about this. It's the Christmas one, right? Isaiah 9.6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's just a few in the Old Testament. The New Testament, it's even clearer. John 1.1, as you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. We read several verses later in chapter 1 of John that... Again, here, they are expressing in the level of knowledge that God, revelation God had given them at the time to understand what is going on here, that Jesus Christ was the word of the Logos. He is with God, that is God the Father. We would put parentheses there. This is not uncommon. I'm not adding to the word of God. It's the intent of the author that's here. We speak this way often. We don't express words very clearly, uh, ideas very clearly, are, that is explicitly when we speak, when we say, well, you know, all the fans are out. I heard that in the prayer time. All the fans are out. Out of what? Out of the basement? Out of the house? Out of the yard? Out and about? Being used? When I hear something's been taken out, it's being taken out and being used. It's an incomplete sentence, but we all knew what she meant. She said, the fans are gone. Hallelujah. I can hear myself think. And so here, when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. What God? God the Father. And the Word was God. He is part of the Godhead, the second member, that is, the second person of the Godhead. Now, other passages, I just have a few here, we read of in the Gospels, especially in John, where you see the deity of Christ shining forth the most. You have what we had in the question of the larger catechism, that when you ascribe unto the Son or the Holy Spirit names and attributes and works and worship that are proper to God only, you're saying that they are God. And so God's knowledge, we read here in John 2.25, now when he was in Jerusalem, that is Jesus Christ, at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Well, this is great. Doing miracles. I believe, they say. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. He knew the hearts of the people who believed that their belief was not a lasting belief. Is what they call a miraculous faith. It's a faith based only on the miracles. As soon as the miracles are gone, they don't believe anymore, and they don't care. How can Jesus know what is in man? Unless he's God. That which is attributed to either the Son or the Holy Spirit, that's an attribute of God, means that they are God. John 5.17, here it's pretty explicit. John 5.17 we read, But Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. 
I mean, if all you ever had was that in the New Testament, that would be enough. Jesus says, when I am working where my Father works, he's saying, I am on par with God the Father. I have God attributes, for he is a second member of the Trinity. He was there at creation, he's there in providence, and he does miracles. The whole thing there is all that wrapped up in the debate with the Jews and the Sabbath day and whatnot. The Jews got it. The Pharisees understood the implications, the logical reasoning. The Pharisees are very good at logical reasoning. It's the way they unfortunately used logic and twisted things around in their tradition. If you paid attention, you saw the holes in the logic, as a matter of fact. It wasn't the logic was the problem. They were misusing it. They understood the implications here. He not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with what? God the Father. That's blasphemy, according to the Jews. And that would be right if it wasn't Jesus. If you made that claim, that would be blasphemy. We would cast you out of the church. Jesus made the claim, and it was true. And he backed it up. He did miracles. <laughs> he raised Lazarus from the dead. And the words he spoke were true words. And elsewhere, he's called God. In Romans 9, 5, we read, Of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all. Who's over all? Christ, who came, is over all. The eternally blessed God. Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. He's described and called God right there in Romans 9, 5. Again, those are some highlights. There have been entire books written on this. You can unpack this further and further to see, and this is important, that there is another member of the Trinity that is the Son. Now, we know the Father arranges. What does the Son do? The Son accomplishes. Ephesians 1, 7, and other parts of Ephesians as well as you read through that. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. It's Jesus who shed His blood. The forgiveness of sins. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, and we are adopted. And other like descriptions there in Ephesians 1, 7 and following. Ascribe to the Son. This is what the Son is doing. He shed his blood through us. You would call that accomplishing the redemption required for our salvation. The Son, the Father arranged it. It's not the Father who shed his blood. Not the Father who came to earth. It was the Son who came to earth and shed his blood. He had a different role in our redemption. Hallelujah, right? John 6, we read in the great bread of life discourse. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life, verse 48. And then verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. Christ is saying, it is me you have to believe in. I'm the one who's giving you life. This is part of my function, my application of redemption. The Father arranges the Son applies redemption for us. And the third point, God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit. He's not mentioned as much in the Old Testament and with respect to the prophecies, although the Spirit of, of the Lord or Spirit of God is there a number of times in the Old Testament. I won't go over those passages. They're easier to find. I'll give you these ones. Genesis 1-2, I already read, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. What, what's, what's going on? There's something else going on here. Again, how much they exactly knew in the Old Testament, we don't know. They knew something was going on here. Isaiah 63.10, we read, But they re rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. <laughs> but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Not just grieving him, 
they grieved the Holy Spirit, another member of the Trinity that can be grieved. He's not a force or a power like in Star Wars. It's what the JWs treat the Holy Spirit as, some kind of force. You don't grieve a force. You grieve a person. And it grieved God the Father so much for grieving the Holy Spirit that he judged them. New Testament, of course, is the light of day compared to the Old Testament, and heaven will be the light of eternity compared to our knowledge of the New Testament era now when we get to heaven, right? It gets better and better. Acts 5.3, the great passage there, well-known passage. Acts 5.3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, that is the land, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not your own to control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then Peter concludes, why have you lied against God? 1 Corinthians 2.10, here we have the attributes of Godness, or the Godhead, attributed to the Spirit, and therefore the Spirit is God. 1 Corinthians 2.10, but God has revealed them to us through His Spirit, for the Spirit, not, not the Father, but the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. How deep is God? He's eternally deep. How can the Spirit search the eternal de- depth of God unless He Himself is eternal? John 14, 16, we read, And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another helper, sometimes translated comforter or advocate, and He may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. This shows us uh, the personhood of the Spirit, that He's not a force or something, but a person, unique, like when we think of one another as unique that way. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills, as the Spirit wills and decides things. As only a person wills and decides things. He is deity and He is a person. There is one God and three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Blessed be their name forevermore. And of course, in redemption, He has a role as well. The Father arranges, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies. The Spirit applies the redemption wrought by the Son and planned by the Father or arranged by Him. As we read, of course, the Spirit gives you life. We all know John 3. Nicodemus, don't you know about the Holy Spirit? He blows where He wills and He gives life. He applies the work of the, Spirit, of the Son upon you and gives you a new heart. Ephesians 1.13. We're back there again. In whom also, having believed, that is the Son, you believe in the Son, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. The Spirit is involved in our salvation. And He seals us with redemption. That is, it's there. He won't let you go. It's genuine. And it's permanent. And He's the guarantee of our inheritance. That is heaven. And He will bring us there. This is the role of the Holy Spirit, which is not the role of the Son nor the role of the Father. In other words, I could have just preached through Ephesians 1, 3-14 and proven the Trinity. But there is but one Godhead and three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each with a different role in our redemption. But you need lots of Bible verses, so I gave them to you. You want a copy of this? I can give it to you as well. All this to say, no Trinity, no salvation. Blessings of salvation are only seen and accomplished by the Trinity. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Is one of 
the benedictions I give to this body. It is a Trinitarian benediction, obviously. It's the grace of Jesus. It's the love of God, what? The Father. And the communion of the Holy Spirit, because those three are one God. If only God, the Father, gets all the honor and glory, why does Paul here and a host of other places praise the Son and praise the Spirit and give attributes and a blessing in their name and not just the name of the Father only. Because we have, in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, the foundation, the clarity of the Trinity. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, putting them under the influence and power of God Almighty in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is name singular, and yet three persons, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. One of those things we ought to teach is the Trinity. For Christ has given us that in our calling a vocation as a church in the Great Commission. Praise the God of the Bible. Praise the Father for arranging our salvation from eternity past. Praise the Son for accomplishing our salvation from the cross. And praise the Spirit for applying our salvation and securing it for eternity. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Our Lord and Savior, we stand in humility before you, bowing our hearts, thankful God that you have saved us from the uttermost. From the beginning eternity past to the future, eternity future, Lord. You are involved in all these things, arranging, accomplishing, and applying God. We thank you and bless you. We stand in awe, Lord, for it is indeed a mystery, and yet it is true that there is one Godhead in three persons. Hallelujah. Amen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.